How's it going, everybody? And welcome to this next episode of the Stupid Questions podcast. Today we have Conrad. Oh, I forgot to say his name already. Uh, I think it's Goringer. Um, he is the founder of Working Triathlete, author of several books such as The Working Triathlete, and co-author of Triathlete or Triathlon Freestyle Simplified. Um, a guy based out of Nashville, Tennessee, who is in his own right a super avid triathlete, qualified to get his elite license, uh, but never took it. Um, he and Derek Stone are the founders of Working Triathlete, and they currently have over 300 athletes, including I think more than I want to say more than seven, possibly 10 professional athletes uh, in the sport. Um, today we just have him on hearing his story, so I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Conrad. Awesome. We're rolling. Um, so, Conrad, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, what were you going to say? I was going to say thank you for having me. Glad to <laughs> chat with you today. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, I have to be careful because this is like the real, the first interview, I guess technically the second one where I actually know the person of a little bit. So I'll try to keep it as exciting and interesting uh going forward and asking authentic questions so i tried to <laughs> i tried to come up with some ones that um will hopefully dig in a little bit to who you are but just to open up first i want to ask who is conrad and how do i pronounce your last name i should have known that by now oh that's okay it's it's a tricky one it's uh conrad geringer even geringer. though it's o-e-r that's german many times okay. the the letters don't sound like they should when you look sure. at the order of them but uh conrad geringer and i uh, am a triathlon coach based out of nashville tennessee uh, i started working triathlete about seven years ago now and um so working triathlete is a it's a triathlon racing team and it's a coaching group um right now we have eight coaches and we have around 300 athletes in the in the ecosystem and they range from you know pure beginners all the way up mm -hmm. to professional triathletes and uh so started working triathlete and then about three years ago i actually joined forces with uh fellow working triathlete coach derek stone and mm -hmm. uh you know, he's he's a, a great coach. He's based out of Cleveland, and both of us were in Nashville, coaching a separate stable of athletes. And but we would always kind of meet up, and uh, yeah, athletes would train together. And we're like, we should just join join forces, and yeah. that was a great decision. And um, you know, we we really emphasize community and and maximizing obviously maximizing performance in triathlon sure. and in life. Yeah. And we're going to talk a, a ton about that. Um, here in a little bit too, but I just have to say, I see more working triathlete kits come up on USAT or, or other just random media. And I have to ask, is that planned? Are you guys just like getting out there and making sure that you get that exposure or how in the world is that happening? It, we, so we did not plan it. I think it's just a consequence of having the privilege of coaching athletes who, are dialed in and have a lot sure. of intrinsic motivation to get better. And we, we certainly show up to a lot of races and we, uh, you know, do well, I think, sure. I don't know the exact numbers, but I think we had seven or eight national champions this year. Um, I know that last year we had 
nearly 40 athletes at the, the 70.3 world championships. So it's, awesome. it's a good group of, of athletes. We all inspire one another. Uh, and like I said, it's, we're certainly fortunate to, uh, have, I guess, attracted or, or somehow we just were able to create a community that is, is awesome. And that again, inspires people to, to get better. Yeah. You guys are cool. We also have cool kits. So yeah, that's what uh, I was going to say. The cool factor is pretty legit. They're noticeable. (laughs) Yes. Derek, uh, Derek is actually, he has a good eye for, uh, for design and he's, he's pretty good at, at that. So, and we put a lot of thought into it. It's, oh my gosh, way way too much to be honest with you. Uh, I'm pretty low maintenance when it comes to aesthetics. You know, I like to think I have a good eye, but uh, you know, some people get very, very passionate and mm-hmm. uh, concerned about what the the kit design is going to look like. So we do we do care a lot, spend a lot of time, but uh, yeah. it helps. Yeah, you can't go wrong with the black and white design. It's just so clean. It's hard to go wrong, honestly. Yeah, that's awesome. So I got to ask you, uh, where are you from originally? Like, what is your backstory? I'm from Pennsylvania originally, so I was born in the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton region. Yeah, Scranton is known as the location of the office. So I grew up there when I was younger, and then family moved to South Central PA, um, like Carlisle, sort of near Harrisburg. I grew up in a little town called Mount Holly Springs, and uh, I grew grew up across the street from from a library, and I am, I'm definitely a nerd and that's, I think what helps me be an effective coach. But, uh, I remember just growing up and being literally obsessed with endurance sports from when I was a kid, from when we did the, you know, the gym class mile in probably third grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still remember my first time. It was like seven, it was seven (laughs) 48. Oh, let's go. That's awesome. And it, uh, it's just, it, it has been a passion from, you know, I, Grew up and in, in, in high school and, and college, I ran cross country and track, and uh, so I've been in the endurance sports game for a while, and really absorbing a lot of, I guess, the the higher end uh, information out there. You know, the studies. I think I read you know, back, sure. back in the day the uh, you know Tim Noakes his his book was the Bible, and it. I read that at a very, very young age and, uh, and was really a student of, of running and, and cycling since, since I was a little kid. Yeah. Um, and then I went to, to college here in Nashville. I went to, to Vanderbilt and I ran there and uh, stuck around afterwards. So it's been uh, a, fun, a fun journey. I started coaching a few athletes when I graduated um, from college and then started coaching mainly, mainly triathletes around mm-hmm. 2016 and then sort of officially started working triathlete in 2017. Um, oh, it's been good. So growing up, you said like you remember third grade. So you're like seven, eight years old figuring out, Oh, I can run. Was that something from that point on that you were like, I think I'm going to try to get into this or is it something that your parents really encouraged? Cause I assume you were more of an energetic child or. 
I was always exploring things. We grew up kind of near the Appalachian Trail. Uh, oh, cool. And I was really into to, to fly fishing, but mainly I was interested in baseball, football. I played baseball and football until high school when I specialized. And you know, I was always, I was wanting to run fast. I was always one of the faster kids, but you know, I was mm-hmm. a pretty big kid. I was actually a, an inside linebacker and guard in, uh, when I played right. football. And, and then, uh, but then I, they would always have me run the, like the suicide sprints with the wide receivers because I was like a bigger guy, but I could keep up. So that was yeah. kind of funny. And uh, then I just loved running so much that I couldn't not do it. So I, I stopped playing baseball and football to the chagrin of the coaches, and mm. but really loved loved running. And that sort of led me to, to coaching and because uh, I just love everything about it. I love equipping athletes with tools to make them faster and uh it's it's fulfilling so yeah for sure that's awesome and you said you ran for college this was for vanderbilt and you were running track and field or just cross country or so the the only varsity sport is cross country so that's sec and then we uh the men's cross country team would also run track meets but that wasn't like you couldn't could not qualify for say regionals or nationals Sure. as as part of the track team but you know the cross country team we would show up and and run so with your oh you were going to say something no no i wasn't uh with the first experience of coaching you said you did right around the end of college i believe was that like someone like hey conrad i want to get good at this and you seem to know how or was it kind of a premeditated thing oh, i'm going to get a coaching license and go forward it was it was more informal it was it was mainly coaching runners at first, and then uh, I became very very dialed into to triathlon, and um, the the market to coach is just larger in triathlon because it's sure. it's way more com- it's complicated. There, there yeah. are many dynamics. There are many ways to approach training, and I think it's something I forget the exact statistic, but Certainly over 50% of Ironman finishers have, have a coach. I think it's 60%. And you know, most, most of the top-level athletes do. Um, but mm-hmm. So that's, that drove you know, really specializing in, in triathlon. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and most of the athletes on working triathlete obviously are triathletes, but... We also work with pure runners and sure. uh, it's, we coach athletes to, you know, ultras and, and other things. Yeah. Um, in college, what was your degree? Was it exercise phys or something like that? No, it was uh, a double major in English, poli sci, and I minored in, in corporate strategy. So not... Uh, not exercise science. I don't even think that was available. Yeah, <laughs> I know it wasn't. I mean, they don't even have it like a business degree. It had to be economics or corporate strategy. But uh, I mean, in college, I wanted to potentially be a lawyer. You know, took okay. the LSAT and and actually was going to go to Vanderbilt for law. But then in August, right before starting, I was like, I don't know if I want to actually be a lawyer. Yeah. So uh, went went another direction, and then I worked in the investments group of a publicly traded real estate investment trust um, for a while in the uh, you know acquisitions and then director of dispositions and 
um, enjoyed that, but sort of coached athletes. One might say on the side, but really it was, I mean, I was spending dozens and dozens of hours a week <laughs> on building yeah. working triathlete. Basically throughout my twenties, just full bore, literally 90 hour weeks, hundred hour weeks, just working, wow. writing and, and coaching. And obviously pretty dialed in and, and learning everything possible that sure. one could learn to make athletes faster. Yeah, for sure. One last question, then I'll quit going back to the college thing. But what is poli sci? Oh, political science. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> okay, nice. You felt like that has informed the way that you coach at all and the way that you kind of do life? I mean, I think that, that writing has certainly helped. So I always, I've always loved writing. And I think writing just teaches you how to think and it helps you mm. work out different concepts and ideas so that, well, you understand them better, but you just get to the sure. truth better. So I think the main purpose of college is teaching you how to think, how to think critically mm. and how to, you know, synthesize a bunch of information and, and apply it. Um, but you know, I mean, number one is whatever you go to college for, obviously you should become an expert in it, but there's a limit there. And eventually you have to self-study and sure. you have to have your finger on the pulse of whatever industry you're in. It's mm -hmm. like you have all this information. How do you apply it effectively? And uh, I think that's the main benefit of college. And, and that's certainly helped me sure. coach effectively and, and parse through a bunch of different concepts and ideas. It's like, okay, this new product came out. Let's think critically. Mm -hmm. Like, is it is it actually going to help? Like, why will it help? And and all that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so tell us about, because there's a book that you wrote and then co-wrote. So The Working Triathlete, you wrote that book and then co-authored Triathlon Freestyle Simplified. I guess the first question in this topic, when did you decide, oh, I think I want to write a book? Because you said you enjoy writing, like you've obviously majored in partially English. So tell us that story. I, uh, after coaching for a number of years, I, I thought that it was a productive exercise to write a book. And I thought that a lot of athletes sort of had a misunderstanding of how to train efficiently. And I also wanted to dispel the myth that, you know, one could have a full-time job and, and actually train in a manner that can enable high performance. Um, so the working triathlete is, is a book that I wrote that it was inspired by a lot of the athletes who, who I coached. And, mm -hmm. and also how I trained at the time. Cause you know, I, again, I was working like a madman. It's amazing. My, my wife, uh, <laughs> stuck with me <laughs> for those, you know, 10, 12 years. But, uh, it, it certainly when we think about triathlon, it is very age group driven. It mm -hmm. is composed of a lot of type a high achievers. And because of that, that those athletes are usually trying to excel in various areas, but they also want to be fast. Um, so, you know, the working triathlete, it, it really focused on how to maximize performance with, with deliberate efficiency. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Talked about some various principles therein that can help athletes train efficiently, but also progress um, given whatever time they have available. To train and that that is the first question that we ask 
age group athletes when we start coaching them. It's not, you know, it, it isn't even, you know, what are your goals <laughs> or what are your time goals, racing goals? It's how many hours a week reasonably yeah. do you have to commit to this endeavor? And then you have to adapt the plan to that. And then, you know, you have to look at the athlete. What is their background? Do they have a, a really high level of fitness in, in one discipline? You know, how much should they be swimming? And then the plan has to mold to that. So everything hinges on on that. And then you just maximize efficiency therein. But, you know, it isn't even efficient training is not even just limited to athletes training eight to 12 hours a week. It also counts for athletes training 20, 25 hours a week. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you want to get maximize the fitness benefit relative to the recovery costs. Right. So, yeah, the book kind of explores that and explores some some principles of efficiency. Um, so, so that was that was a fun one to write, and you know, that book was well received. And then um, Rob Sleemaker and I co-wrote Triathlon Freestyle Simplified, and that was an important book, I think, because triathletes are notorious for not being strong swimmers. You know, personally, mm -hmm. I don't come from a swim background. I yep. think my first 70.3, I swam something like 53 minutes. Uh, and, you know, so personally went through, you know, how does a person who has no flexibility in their ankles or shoulders or anything, no, not even any spinal mobility, uh, how do they improve at swimming? What do, you, what do they need to focus on? You know, if you're a 40-year-old trying to learn how to swim for the first time, what do you need to think about? What do you need to focus on? If you're a triathlete, you know, how do you structure training? Do you need to, is it different than, you know, an eight-year-old just learning how to swim? Mm -hmm. So we, uh, we tackled that and we, we interviewed a bunch of coaches and athletes all across the world, really, who have experience coaching triathlete and, you know, triathlon swimmers and uh, kind of distilled everything. Um, and, you know, we try to convey principles and, uh, and, and really concepts for how adult learn swimmers or triathlon swimmers should, uh, approach swimming. So tell us what, what, what are those kind of key principles for approaching it from a later age? So, you know, I think that number one is, so it depends on, on the athlete and where they're starting. I, I certainly think that at the beginning, shorter, more frequent, sessions are are important and you have to be obsessed with technique at the beginning mm -hmm. um but you just you have to get into the water a lot but i think everybody asks you know well, does technique matter more or does fitness matter more and it's it's both like you can't say one or the other certainly focusing on technique at the beginning is essential and as a consequence of focusing on technique and being dialed in and obsessed with it you uh uh will your fitness will improve but you know i think one thing that really is important for triathlon swimmers is they, they really need to build swim strength and they just need to get into the water and, and swim a lot and i think that a lot of triathletes they overthink the swim and they be sort of become over gliders and and they're not focused when they're swimming, honestly. Yeah. They're not thinking, they're robotic, and they start thinking about, you know, what is my elbow supposed to do? Or, you know, how does Katie Ledecky swim? <laughs> right. 
and they're not feeling the water and, and just thinking about what they're actually physically doing. They're thinking about like the ideal swim stroke rather right. than developing their, their own stroke. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think some principles for open water triathlon swimming is the, so the catch in the pool is, is most important. Um, oftentimes, very few triathletes, honestly, or adult learned swimmers can develop a really good, strong kick. Um, so when we think about wetsuit swimming, I mean, we just think about, you know, if, if one can achieve a high stroke rate, that's probably a good thing. You know, to have a high stroke rate, you need to be fit and get your timing down. Um, we really focus on how the kick drives rotation. So we really focus mm. on coupling the pool with sort of core rotation and core rotation occurs subsequently from obviously kicking down. So, you know, we kind of break down the stroke like that. Um, but, you know, th those are some principles for, I think, that adult learned swimmers should, should think about. We, we also focus on some of the big errors, you know, crossing over center when your hand enters. That's probably yeah. the number one error we see. So, yeah. you know, so we have strategies for fixing that, you know. Sure. Um, but what is a good stroke rate um, in your experience, like 65, 75? It, it really depends on, on the stroke style, I think. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, 35 stroke cycles or 70, uh, you know, strokes, like your hand hits the water 70 times. That can work for, and you can have a front pack swim if you have a good hip-driven stroke and a strong kick. Uh, you know, if you have more of a shoulder-driven one, you're probably going to need to be above 40 or 80. Um, I mean, obviously, you look at Lucy Charles, and she's up you know, in the mid-90s, I believe. Bam, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then you have somebody like Florian Angert. He's a, a pro triathlete. I read somewhere that... You know, his is, is lower. It's like low to mid 30s, but he must have a strong kick. Taller athletes are going to have a a lower, they can have a lower stroke rate, but right. um, <laughs> that isn't even necessarily always the case. Um, yeah. There are some really strong, uh, you know, distance swimmers, like pure swimmers, you know, 1500 meter swimmers who have, and they're like maybe six foot six and their stroke rate is like, you know, 45. So that's yeah. 90. Yeah. Um, so it, it can vary, but if, if an age group triathlete is below say 30 to 32 strokes per minute, stroke cycles per minute, that's, we definitely want to increase it because they're probably over gliding up front or they're swimming with too much of a catch up style stroke. Um, so we typically want, want to fix that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, swimming is super interesting to me. I love swimming. Um, and I say that now, you know, only years later after swimming significantly throughout the week, trying to get in five or six days a week in the pool. And I've kind of thought of it and I've never really been coached specifically in swimming or had someone analyze it, um, which is probably a bad thing. Could probably build on that more had I done that. But I feel like swimming is almost like a painting where you take in a ton of information and like you, in, if the painting is your stroke or what you're doing in one cycle, you kind of add on things over time. At least I have, like you focus mm -hmm. on one part, you get it, you feel it, you understand it, you know, from the catch to the pull. Like one of the biggest jumps I ever made in swimming was after my coach just told me something simple like, hey, just to make sure 
you know, after the catch and the pull that you're pushing past your hip and almost grazing that thumb on the hip. And that like gave me another, you know, probably 20, 30% to be able to pull through, kick out the water in the back and then just complete that full stroke. And then this past seven, eight months, figuring out how to time your kick in line with your stroke where it's like you're catching Mm -hmm. and starting to kick when you're getting kind of midpoint and then they work off of each other, like two oars and a canoe working together. So yeah, swimming's super interesting to me. Um, I've done crazy things like get in the pool for 500 to a thousand yards in my wetsuit with really long leg hair. And then after you jump in afterwards, you have like this ultra sensitivity and you feel like, Oh yeah, I got more drag coming off this part and I'm kicking way outside of my box or whatever. I'm just whale flailing in the back. So yeah, swimming super awesome. Yeah, it's definitely a puzzle. It's tough to, you know, if you're a new swimmer to figure it out for sure. But Number one is building comfort in the water, learning how to how to float, and then learning how to breathe, and then mm-hmm. it's just all about refining after that yeah. and spending time in the water. There are no shortcuts. Yeah, yeah, literally not. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned breathing because I remember when I first started swimming, I almost was like in this semi-controlled state of panic for <laughs> years because you're like, I have to breathe, I have to breathe, and then you get comfortable enough to where you're just breathing right above the water surface and stuff. It's amazing, too, to watch, like, Olympic-level swimmers to be able to basically not breathe for a 100 and just go full force and to realize they have that much power and just the ability to suck up that much oxygen beforehand to not even need to breathe and just glide. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. And that, that's one reason I always encourage triathletes to learn how to flip turn because you just mm-hmm. learn breath control. I mean, you, you learn how to hold it, but uh, you, your body or really your brain, I think, just gets more comfortable Mm -hmm. managing the CO2 buildup that occurs. Uh, And you just, I think you just get more efficient at, you know, expelling the CO2. And a lot of it has to do with achieving a calm mind. And then in an open water situation, then if you miss a few breaths, it's not a big deal because you're used to actually doing flip turns. So, you know, I think, I think that's probably the number one reason triathletes should learn flip turns honestly yeah. i think it makes you a better open water swimmer because of that not to mention you know you gotta tap into a swimmer's mindset mm-hmm. and you want to view yourself as a swimmer you know we think about identity in sports and triathlon and and too many athletes think oh i'm not a swimmer or oh i'm not a runner yeah. and it's like how many years are you going to swim you know three or four times a week before you think of yourself as a swimmer i think part of achieving that that identity is doing what swimmers do (laughs) and part of that is learning how to flip turn and uh you know it's good to learn other strokes and and things like Mm -hmm. that whether or not it actually makes you a better long distance open water swimmer because that's what triathletes really are yeah yeah, it's interesting you mentioned with the um, flip turns helping. I've never even thought about that, but the ability to be able to skip a breath or two because, yeah, a recent race I did got kicked in the face around a buoy, and it's like, oh, I guess I'm not breathing for the next two or three strokes. <laughs> just trying to <laughs> yeah. gather your senses. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, so you said that you know for a stint of 10 to 12 years, like you were training like a madman. What did that look like, um, and what inspired it? Were you like, okay, I'm going to go at this full time. Did you want to? qualify i'm assuming you did qualify to get your elite card did you decide just to focus on other things like what was that phase of your life like 
Yes. So, I mean, I, I trained a decent amount, but pretty darn efficiently. Uh, the So I, I wanted to build certainly the, the coaching business and have that sustain me. And, and that was a goal of mine for for years, really. Um, obviously, that, that takes time and you have to prove yourself. But uh, I, I did train and compete at, you know, decently high age group level. Um, I qualified humble, it was for my, <laughs> qualified for the elite license, but I did not take it. Um, just because I, again, had other goals and that included getting working triathlete to a place where, you know, I didn't have to have another job, like a corporate job. And mm-hmm. my wife and I, we have a daughter and obviously wanted to support her. And yeah. that was more important than trying to train, you know, 25 hours a week to uh, sort of be a viable pro, which which is necessary, especially, sure. you know, with a lack of swim background. Yeah, I started to really try to learn how to swim in, you know, my early 20s. That's It's tough and broke my collarbone and have, mm. I have no flexibility in my left left shoulder. So there, there are certain limitations that sure. I wasn't. I wasn't willing to put in the work required to, to do it. I mean, that's the straight and I, and it makes sense because now, you know, sort of mid thirties and in a good position and, and finally mm-hmm. reaping you know, the fruits of having the ability to, to help other athletes. And, and really that's my highest and best use it's as a coach and it's helping other athletes just achieve their goals, achieve their dreams in, in triathlon, but also, you know, just build their own character. Cause that's one thing that triathlon sort of forces. It's like to be consistent with training, it requires you to sort of embody certain virtues like self-discipline and, mm-hmm. and, you know, a sense of self-agency and these virtues, they leach over and they cross over to other areas of your life. They bolster confidence and you just become a more, I think, effective person um of course we also have to strike that balance and make sure that triathlon doesn't take over our lives if we're not trying to become professionals uh and Mm. certainly my job if i'm coaching you know an attorney or a doctor or just anybody in business and they want to say qualify for kona it's setting expectations and and then building a plan that will enable them to not sacrifice other areas of sure. their life, but, or at least picking, you know, what months do we need to be really dialed in? And your family has to kind of get on board <laughs> with that. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, you, know, you can't, you, we got to peel back the load a lot. Not, not just because, you know, after an Ironman, you need to recover, but you also have to kind of nurture the other areas of your life and and that's important and we don't want to forget that but uh yeah yeah, i also work with very very fast athletes you know pros and they're at a stage in their their life where it's they're committed and i think Mm -hmm. to reach the level they're at you got to be a little obsessed with that and you have Mm -hmm. to be a little selfish and uh but there's still, you still need to have, I think, an identity separate from, you know, 
triathlon also. But um, so it's part of my job is I think helping athletes think that through, like think about their why and think about how am I going to integrate triathlon into my life so that mm. you know, it doesn't steal from my actual enjoyment of life uh, overall. Have you coached any, um, I age group or professional, I assume this would probably fit uh, the question fit around professionals a little bit more, but have you coached a professional through kind of their debut to coming toward the end of their season or where they decided to retire? Not, not, re- not, not a pro to retirement. Um, yet. I mean, I've certainly worked with triathletes who have taken some time away from the sport and I've, uh, very few athletes I work with honestly fall off. I've worked with many athletes for, you know, six, seven plus years. And, but you know, there are a few of those athletes who have been around a long time they're, sometimes they step away and, and they've actually come back. Uh, so, because part of it is when you're a triathlete, it's it's almost like a state of mind. It's like you just yeah. love moving your body. You love it. and It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, but I think you, there comes a point where you want to reframe, reframe it. And mm-hmm. if you're overly obsessed with performance, and sometimes that can be too stressful and it can wear on you and you get burnt out. So sometimes mm-hmm. you need time completely away from the sport, which is good, or you need a few months of just unstructured training, doing your own thing. And honestly, I think we're kind of seeing that with a lot of the pros who are, uh, you know, in their like early 40s now, um, who are exploring other endurance endeavors like yeah. gravel racing, um, I'm thinking about Sebastian Keenley, Heather, ja- mm-hmm. Heather Jackson is de- she's yeah, into gravel them. racing. And, yeah. uh, so it's, there's a lot, the, the world, there's a lot of endurance sports that don't involve, you know, combining swim, bike, running, and they can be refreshing <laughs> doing that. And yeah. I would say that the most fun I've had during races were, were races where I didn't really care about performance. It was just embracing the journey. So yeah. I did, I did Norseman in uh i forget when 2017 or 18 and that's probably the most famous extreme triathlon in the world happens in norway there's i think Mm -hmm. like eighteen thousand feet of total elevation gain and conditions yeah conditions are brutal but i you know i just did not care about going fast there and i just cherished every minute of that Mm. and uh and it was a blast truly um So sometimes you need a year of just that, for example. Yeah, the reason I ask that is because, I mean, in my own life, I've experienced it some, but I've heard lots of stories or witnessed other experiences where professionals will, and this is for any sport, Olympian or professional driver or whatever, they'll come to a place where their career is more or less kind of ending or transitioning, and then the identity is so wrapped in what they've been doing for so long, it's like really hard for someone to disassociate themselves and realize like, well, this was, this was a part of who I am and it built who I am, but I can take a lot of these foundational motivators going back to what you were saying about the, why am I doing what I'm doing and move that to something else. And I feel like that needs to be continued to be talked about more um, because while performance is amazing and it impresses us all and we all love going fast, it's just a great feeling. 
like you were saying, being able to embrace the journey enough to take those foundational blocks and move towards something else is it's actually really difficult to do. I experienced it through business and starting things and then in them failing or having to move on and forced into a new circle of identity. Um, but I think it's really important. So that's why I asked that question because eventually, hopefully that'll come where you're, you've got some athletes are kind of retiring, moving to the next phase. I think of Jan Ferdino, obviously he's like, he's not going to have a hard time. He'll still be able to be involved. I think for a long time in the sport, but a lot of people who aren't at the top 10, top 50 of the world, you kind of fall by the wayside. Like what, what can we do to help them survive, not only survive, but thrive in the, in the next phase? Yeah. It's kind of funny. There's an old joke that, uh, is like a, a professional triathlete retires and they're either going to be a coach or a real estate agent. And, um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's pretty common and, and that's great. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, those are mm -hmm. certainly two good professions, but it, it is an interesting question. It's like, yeah, identity value. I think at the end of the day, you need to just relationships are our number one and just personal relationships just because humans need that that community and and that's the most valuable thing but mm -hmm. uh also just relationships from a networking perspective uh i mean people can yeah. it's it is a unique situation though if especially you, you think about like the itu athletes guys who all they did was triathlon and then they're 40 and it's like okay now now what but yeah. uh, I do think it's a relief for a lot of them because, like like I was just saying, the pressure is high. The burnout is real. Um, frankly, it's even even as a coach, like it is substantially more stressful coaching very very high level athletes than it is uh, age group athletes, mm -hmm. um, just because of the emotions involved with it, yeah. and yeah, it requires a lot of. I think a high EQ, <laughs> you know, uh, you need some emotional intelligence to deal with it. And I think egos are bad and mm. things like that. So it's, it's, uh, it is certainly a challenge. Um, I think when, when an athlete, like a, a pro triathlete retires, it's like, what's, what's next. But, yeah. um, the, the skills, kind of going back to this concept of the virtues that you kind of hone or manifest if mm -hmm. you train at a high level in triathlon, those skills or those that the discipline you kind of forge and all that, it makes you successful at, at whatever you do. Right. So, you know, I think if one wants to start their own thing in triathlon or elsewhere, I think, retired triathletes are probably in a good position to do so. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a unique thing. Yeah. Have you ever run into a situation where one of your athletes, professional age group are j is just like doubting you and you know, it's the right way to go. Has that ever affected your confidence in what you're doing or in the methods that you use? It, yes. Now I I'm pretty good at appealing to, to science and sure. kind of asking questions of the athlete and you know if they think one thing i'm like you know why why do you think that and then what about this um remember this mm -hmm. but i with certain athletes it depends on the athlete like with certain athletes it's more of not, certain athletes like they just want the g gym teacher style coaching relationship where you know 
I recommend this and then they just do it without questioning it. Other athletes, they like having more of a say in their uh, coaching relationship and it's more athlete driven. And it's a coach's job to understand and adapt to the athlete and get them what they need. Because at the end of the day, even if like you think one approach is, is probably better, if an athlete thinks that another one is better for them, when they toe the line, they might be more confident. <laughs> and you can't discount you know, the value of uh, being in a positive mental state, towing that line, knowing that you did everything you could to be ready to you know, face your competitors and, and push your limits and get the most out of yourself. Um, but I mean, certainly there are certain, there are non-negotiables, but, uh, you know, like, but, you know, the athletes, they want to race a lot, even though that can impact their ability to maximize performance at an A race. If something like that, I'm like, you know, you're going to have a better Ironman performance if you don't do these four other races in the build. At the end of the day, it's also, you know, that that's my perspective, but sure. we also do triathlon just to have fun and, you know athletes if they want to race they want to race but it's my job to i think for like offer different pathways to approach that we can use and um but in certain instances you know i, I try to coach in an athlete driven way with with kind of the athletes i'm talking about who are you know and then stubborn the other thing is though like certain athletes are just not coachable and mm. sometimes when we're if we're onboarding an athlete if they are too stubborn it just doesn't make sense to coach them so you know i've certainly turned away <laughs> athletes who i thought wouldn't be you know a good fit for my coaching style um because that's that's the other thing it's like every athlete it, it is not going to be a perfect fit for a coach so it uh the athlete coach relationship is an interesting one. Yeah. You're sort of a therapist, you're you're yeah. a scientist, yeah. you're you're a friend, you're an advisor, you're you're everything. But uh, you know, that's that's what makes it fun. But it's it's serious business and you know, I certainly take it seriously. So I'm curious because you have raced quite a bit and there's this feeling that we all get once you cross the finish line, especially if it's like a good race, no matter what, if you finish it, um, that's one feeling, but then hitting kind of benchmarks you set for yourself or even some minor expectations or whatnot. It's a great feeling when you have an athlete that is able to perform and hit those benchmarks. Let's just use Miguel as a example. Cause I know you coach him and he's a professional. Um, do you get the same kind of a high? Is it a, I, I'm assuming it's not exactly the same, but you obviously love coaching and you've sought this out. What is that feeling like in comparison? Yeah, I mean, I get way more stressful before, honestly, before you know, an athlete's important race than mm -hmm. I do my own because I, again, I, my highest and best use is as a coach and I still race, but not, yeah, I'm like second, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I would say that, you know, I do get probably more excited and happy when, you know, an athlete achieves a big goal. I mean, this past weekend, uh, it's just fresh on, on my mind, but, you know, two athletes did, uh, Ironman Maryland and one mm -hmm. athlete I've been working with for a couple of years, Dallin. So, 
you know, his PR, I think he did two 12 and a half hour Ironmans uh, before I started to work with him and then started working with him a year later. He went 10 and a half hours uh, at Florida. And then another year later, which was Ironman Maryland, he got, he just got third in his age group. He went like 830 something, but the swim was shorter. So it's probably mm -hmm. the equivalent of I don't know, low nine hours. And, and that kind of trajectory and improvement is incredible. And I also yeah. coached uh, another athlete who, who Dallin trains with a lot, you know, Nick, and started coaching him a few months ago. And, and in that time period, he it, it was just really fun working with him because he improved a lot. And he got top 10 in his age group, went the equivalent of a mid-nine hour Ironman. So that's exciting. You know, Todd, uh, he's a pro who I work with this year. He, he took his pro card and he just put together a great race at 70.3 Michigan. He went 349 and that was a massive oh, PR. He executed well. And that, mm. you know, that was just a couple of days ago. He did that. And I, I was extremely excited for, just for elated, that. Yeah. Um, literally more excited <laughs> probably than any other performance that, that I've personally done. And, uh, so it's, it's kind of, kind of funny i guess when you think about it like that yeah yeah that's super interesting i wasn't expecting that um and maybe that means that i'm just not a very good coach <laughs> <laughs> well no i mean it's also like a season of life i think you know i have sure. uh obviously a wife and a, and a daughter we, we had a, a daughter this year actually and your priorities kind of change and mm. over the last few, especially if you jump full time and you're a coach and way you know, I'm, I'm training eight to 12 hours a week now personally, but mm -hmm. I'm coaching 60 hours a week and, uh, and you never turn off. It's yeah. like athletes text at 8 PM. I'm trying to set boundaries, but you know, if they text or something, I have to you respond. answer and respond and you invest a lot of time in it. And, uh, you're, you sort of track them and, you obviously care about them and it's, it's fun to watch them excel. And on the flip side, it, it sucks if they don't have a race that they're happy with and you know, that, that happens. But usually those are opportunities to explore what, what went wrong. Like did the taper go poorly? You travel yeah. to, you know, Europe, what you didn't adapt to the time zone well because mm. at the end of the day i mean we integrate a lot of science and we know exactly where our athletes fitness stands so if something mm -hmm. goes wrong on race day we know why like we i can't think of an example is like well i don't know what happened it's like you know if an athlete has a poor performance maybe <laughs> two days later it's like oh they have COVID, or um you know they have a poor performance we just look at the, sure. at the bike it's like well you overcooked the first half of the bike. Don't do that. Um, so otherwise, you can't fake fitness. So mm. they're going to race to their fitness, no more, no less. Um, so that's something to remember. I think that's in general in triathlon, it's just becoming more science-focused. This yeah. idea that, yeah, the psychobiological model is a thing. It's like you can will your way to a good performance. Think about the central governor or something. But you're not going to exceed like your body's actual fitness, abilities. like metabolic sure. abilities. And we know what the metabolic abilities are now. So there really isn't, there are very, very few surprises now, nowadays. 
It's, I'm going to be selfish now and take some time to talk about my issue and see if you can help me solve it on the air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. No, I, you know, so I, I, the, I, I asked that a little bit tongue in cheek and, and want to talk about it because um, like I feel like I haven't had many other people who have had some type of an issue. In fact, I can't find a single example of somebody who just keeps coming back after most races. And it's like, I can't figure this out where I get like this um, cramping issue in the stomach. And I'm like, maybe it's my position. Maybe it's I'm overeating on the bike. Maybe it's I'm over biking. But I haven't ever walked away and been like, yeah. I mean, there was one exception, Blue Ridge, this past year where I felt like I executed pretty well. But even then, the bike, I was there was some cramping. Or on the run, there was some cramping. And it ultimately kind of forced me not to eat and then i start going downhill so from that standpoint i understand it but do you know of any other athletes who have had issue where they're racing like you've got everything kind of marked out of what they should be hitting power numbers and then come the end of the bike and getting onto the run it just kind of falls apart due to some kind of like gastrointestinal cramping yes it you know the nutrition piece is it can be complicated um and there are many different ways to look at it. I mean, we work, we, we partnered with Precision Hydration actually, and we're doing sweat taste testing here at our lab in Nashville and trying to figure out exactly, you know, how much sodium is an athlete losing yeah. per liter of, of fluid? Because that, that might govern the osmolality of the, the sports drink that you're drinking, uh, or maybe you know, drinking a sports drink as in, you know, having the carbs and sodium distributed evenly in, in the, the liquid, maybe that isn't the best approach for an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they want to separate fluid consumption from carb consumption, things like that. But uh, it, it definitely is a puzzle. I think there are some principles that are kind of universally applicable. And, you know, obviously you want so, so there is a limit on what the body and the stomach can absorb. And that's going to vary person to person. I think it's important to know how much you need to take in. And you can understand how many grams of carbohydrates you should be taking in an hour by doing sure. different types of testing. You know, we use inside testing a lot. And that'll tell you what, uh, you know, at 200 watts, how many grams of carbs are you burning versus fat. And if you know that, you might find, oh, I don't need to take in 120 grams of carbs. I don't even need to take in 90, which is what's commonly thought of as carb max. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people should be able to take in 90 grams of carbs. But you know, if you're doing a race and you're, if your oxidative sort of metabolism like is, is strong, you might not need to take in that many carbs. And you can reduce the basically the osmolality of the fluid you're taking it so, so less carbs less sodium just fewer electrolytes in the, the solution and you could be good but i mean at the end of the day most athletes i, I like thinking about it in terms of most athletes should be able to take in 90 grams of carbs per hour um look at the it depends how concentrated you want the sports drink but you know isotonic sure. is six to eight percent really um the so if we're thinking about a liter of fluid that's that's what if we do the math a thousand milliliters in a liter eight percent of that would be what 80 
grams of carbs. So 80 grams of carbs per liter. So that's 80 times four is 320, 320 calories per liter of fluid. If it's mm -hmm. a 750 mil bottle, you know, divide that, you know, multiply that by 0.75. Then it, right. So the point is be careful with how concentrated the sports drink solution is. Uh, if you're having gut bombs, look at reducing, you know, the concentration of carbs and sodium in the fluid and then contemplate taking in, um, you know, supplementing with gels or blocks or something, but you kind of have to test it. You just have to test yeah. it and figure out an approach that works for you. Um, yeah. I mean, this, again, most athletes, we, we testing kind of starts around like 70 to 80 in training in the race specific phase. And then we see how does 90 work? Is it even necessary to take 90? You know, many of the smaller athletes we work with, you know, I think about you know, athletes who maybe are only putting out, they're doing an Ironman and they're putting out 110 watts, 120 watts. They don't need to be slamming 120 grams of carbs. Uh, so it, it's going to vary uh, for yeah. sure, athlete to athlete. But this past, there are outliers also. So, so the athlete I yeah. just talked about who got third uh, in his age group at Maryland, he took in 140 to 160 grams of carbs per hour. He is, that, that's absurd. That uh, crazy. It's, you know, in, in training, I was like, uh, it, the thing is, it just worked for him really well. And he was fine. <laughs> and it, it enabled him to run the marathon well. His stomach was perfectly fine. If nine, I would say if 98 to 99% of triathletes tried to emulate that, they would be throwing up. Yeah, <laughs> they would have gut bombs. Etc. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think looking at sodium concentration and carbohydrate concentration in the fluid you're taking in would be step one and tweaking that. Yeah. Um, why, what are you taking in? What did you take in that caused the gut bump? Oh, man, I don't even want to. So Wisconsin was just a, a complete crapshoot for a lot of reasons. I mean, to be honest, like I thought I had, quote unquote, dialed in nutrition, but because of my prior experiences, I was like, well, I'm just going to kind of do it by feel. And I, I had some ballpark numbers, but basically what I ended up doing was getting out on the bike and under hydrating, under salting, and then trying to overhydrate and couldn't get anything in. And like, mm. I mean, after I was done, I literally had to have two full IV, IV bags and I took them like it was nothing. I probably could have done mm. three. Um, so I was just like severely dehydrated in a place I'd never been before. So there's a lot. Um, I, I got a sweat test done. I haven't done the, the other test you were talking about, the carb test. Mm -hmm. What is that one called again? Just for Well, I mean, you can go, you can use a metabolic cart. I mean, there are different lab testing protocols available. Mm -hmm. And uh, here in Nashville, so our working triathlete headquarters, we're actually headquartered in a facility and partnered with Transformation Lab. And yeah. um, we do a bunch of different types, <laughs> any yeah. performance or metabolic test you can think of or body comp. But, uh, what I mentioned earlier was inside testing and inside involves getting your, uh, aerobic threshold, obviously, or your anaerobic threshold, your VO2 yeah. max and your VLA max. And the VLA max piece is important because that's a measurement of glycolytic power or, you know, what really, that will influence when your body kind of turns from the oxidative metabolism or burning fat to carbs. 
whenever it's burning carbs, it's generating lactate. And, you know, so, so we measure all that. And based on VLA max and how those three metrics kind of relate to one another and where they fall, we know how much lactate you're producing. And lactate is basically half a sugar molecule and it represents what's going on in your glycolytic system. And yeah. that way you can know exactly at a given power how many grams of carbs you're burning and how many grams of fat. And that's useful. And then uh, you could just do the math. If you were- if you know you're burning, say, you know, 80 grams of carbs per hour during your, your Ironman at whatever, 200 watts, mm-hmm. then... Well, you probably don't need to be taking in 120. You should not be taking in 120. Sure. <laughs> so uh, it can be helpful. They can also measure that just with a metabolic heart. So like the you know the mask that you put on and yeah. it measures like gas exchange. It, it, that that should be able to calculate all of that too, depending on the lab doing it. Yeah, they can give you that data because it's it, it yeah. measures that. It knows. Um, so. That your is re- useful. For sure. Your replenishment rate for carbs versus like what you're actually burning through, you know, what they're getting with the gas or however you measure it, is, should that be around 100% you find or like 75% or what do you th- usually do? So it depends on the race distance because, intensity. you know, yeah. you start with, you know, just call it most people might start with say 400 grams of carbohydrates stored as glycogen in their body and then you, know, you think they're going to swim. Like, what did the breakfast look like? And then there's yeah. the swim. How much did they deplete during the swim? So just say they start the 70.3 with 300 grams of carbs. It's like, well, at the end of the 70.3, you, you need some glycogen left. And it's uh, it kind of depends. You certainly want a positive number there. If you, you know, say, say you're burning 100 grams of carbs per hour and uh, you're, you're taking in 50, well, you're negative 50. And then if it's taking you five hours to do it, yeah, that's, you're burning 250 grams of carbs. You're, you're net negative that much. So you want to do the math. But the thing is, as your glycogen stores are depleted, it is the case that you know, your ability to kind of put out power might be compromised. For whatever reason, maybe your body kind of downregulates, your central governor kicks in and there's central fatigue and mm-hmm. lack of glycogen is contributing to that. So it isn't like you have this big, when when the indicator is on E, you, you can't function because there is a performance decay, you know, beyond a certain amount of glycogen depletion. But I would say if you can finish with like 20 to 25% of your glycogen stores intact, that's a good thing. Um, for most, most athletes could, could pull that off. Um, but you know, athletes who are going really hard in long Ironman races, I mean, they're, they're going to be zero, close to zero. They don't have a choice. Yeah, about finish, you know, yeah. They're putting out 315 Watts <laughs> for, uh, you know, four, four to five hours and then running you know, six minute miles. It's like, no matter how you slice it, they're going to be combusting a lot of carbs and they're going to be close mm-hmm. to zero. Whereas yeah. somebody who's burning fewer carbs and or somebody who can take in a lot of carbs it's just there are different ways to look at it but it's nice knowing where carb max is and that's where you're burning 90 grams of carbs per hour because most people can replace close to that Mm -hmm. um and that's going to be pretty close to to ironman pace for most athletes yeah for sure 
Super fascinating. Thanks for letting me be selfish there. I um, I'm I'm actually starting to mix my own stuff. I did the research with a buddy and ordered the glucose and the fructose, doing the two to one, and then some electrolyte mix so I can. The big focus has actually been sodium because mm-hmm. I realized that I um, I'm getting rid of like seventeen hundred to two thousand milligrams of salt an hour. Wow. And I was That's only, high. Yeah, I got my sweat testing done, and I was. Yeah, just, I guess, way more saltier than I thought I was. And I was only taking probably, at a, at the best, like 600 milligrams an hour. So I'm going to strategically throw that number yeah. up quite a bit. But You're using, uh, what are you using, sodium citrate? Um, so I'm getting this stuff called from Redmond, Redmond Light. And it's got a mixture of like actual sodium, um, chloride, potassium magnesium some other different stuff in there i'm not even totally sure but the big things i'm focusing on because the sweat test gave me back like chloride potassium and sodium but i'm not sure how to measure out the potassium in millimole per liter yet i gotta figure that stuff out Mm -hmm. um but hopefully i'm you know what they say about race day try everything new (laughs) so so augusta i'm trying it like this week and then for the race and kind of just using it as a fun test to see if i can i would love to just finish running 630s to 640s and not feeling like my stomach I'm going to have to stop because I'm cramping so hard and I think that the salt really does have a piece to play but I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure. Yeah. I mean be careful with the amount of sodium and magnesium. It, you don't really need any magnesium. You smart athletes who study nutrition who know way more th- than I do uh about electrolytes. They uh mm-hmm. many of them do say that you don't need or at most need negligible amounts of potassium and magnesium. The main thing is, is sodium because your body loses a lot of sodium when it's sweating, not as much potassium and magnesium. And the issue is you have a sports drink that has a lot of magnesium and potassium. It's just increasing the osmolality of it. So, and that can cause stomach distress. So, you know, consider that. Check out some sources, obviously. Alex Harrison yeah. is a good good resource check him out um but you know like like you're doing it's testing testing is is important uh we're kind of seeing that it, it used to be that fructose was seen as the less important um sort of mo- sugar molecule type but a lot of studies are showing one to one might be better for many athletes. Yeah. Uh, one fructose, one to one fructose glucose. Again, I think I think most sports drinks are probably two to one. But mm-hmm. check out the science. What works with certain athletes might not work with others. I think I was, I think Cody Beal. He 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 did a whole he, thing. He likes it. way more fructose than glucose, and. Um, yeah, somebody like Alex Harrison, I think he's advocating one-to-one now, but we'll, uh, we'll see. And then one, uh, was it Scratched? It's, no, Infinite. They came out with this like recently, this super fructose solution. Uh, fructose that, takes longer to, to, to break down and to take up, right? Like in the body? I mean, it was, right. it, was, it was thought, but the... It, it, it may not <laughs> take okay. lo- as long as we once thought. So there, again, you have these random, these trends in, in triathlon and even in nutrition. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
low carb, then high carb, then you know fructose is good, fructose is bad, and then on the bike yeah. even like and low it's hands, super high confusing hands. as an age group athlete. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, there's there's like no consensus uh, yeah. in a lot of these things because. I mean, con- controlled studies are great, but almost every controlled study has flaws. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, but I think two to one is, is a good, good approach. But I'm saying if that doesn't work, you know, maybe one to one is good. Maybe you have more transporter, you know, proteins in your gut to, to transport the fructose, the, the glucose, probably not. Uh, two to one is probably the best, but. Well, I'm going to play with it all, I mean, especially after this race, because I want to get something figured out uh, by December of next year for New Zealand. Um, yeah, if I could figure this out, I feel like I could kind of reach the goal of qualify for the for the professional license and be like, yes, I did it. Mm-hmm. And then, then who knows, maybe have some kids. Um, you never know. But <laughs> see how it goes. Um, so a couple more questions, and then we'll probably start wrapping it up here. Um, what's it like being a dad? It is amazing. It's really fun. Uh, the the toothless grin <laughs> of my daughter yeah. just cracks me up <laughs> in the morning. She's so happy. Well, she's happy most of the time if she's not hungry sure. or anything. But uh, it it's life changing for sure. It definitely impacts sleep, and it is good personally. I think as a coach to understand what it means have kids obviously because many of the the athletes we coach have kids um mm-hmm. i mean multiple i mean athletes this week i keep bringing up ironman maryland just because the two athletes who i coach sure. who did it did well but both of them had kids this year so okay. you know we had to be efficient with training yeah. we had to be strategic with placing key endurance sessions on the weekends because you know they want to be there for their kids so we did the sure. long run during the week as opposed to stacking key endurance sessions Saturday, Sunday, so that mm-hmm. they could have Sunday with their families. So um, it, I think it, A, is is amazing. It's, it's a lot of work, much less sleep, mm. but, and it also helps with, uh, oops, sorry. That's no, all good. I thought I, uh, I'll clip this part up and then put it on social media because it'd be funny. <laughs> <laughs> good. It was planned though. It was planned. Right. I thought I turned it off. Mm-hmm. I actually turned it on from silent mode when I clicked no, it. Okay. But, uh, no worries. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun for sure. I recommend it if one wants to actually have a kid. Now it is a lot of work. So if you're not sure yeah. if you want one or not, you should certainly make sure you do. But, uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, for sure. No, my, so my wife and I, I'm, I just turned 31 and my wife's finishing up nurse practitioner school and a lot of our friends, you know, we've kind of moved from the phase of post-college to everyone's getting married to now everyone's starting to have kids. And I do have a little bit of the baby fever. I do really look forward to it. One day we'll see what all happens. We still kind of want to go out West and, you know, kind of have a little bit of an adventure, but we'll see how it goes. It's funny because you hear from, you know, a bunch of different media outlets that, millennials are just not having kids and like oh my goodness what is going to happen to the, the, the population yeah. and i think to an extent it, it actually is but it's funny I, I just think that everybody's pushing it back just because yeah. you know, everybody's probably uh, many people are going to college and then mm-hmm. there's been this huge emphasis on career you know, especially mm-hmm. um you're achieving a certain level there and then so i think but when uh some of my 
we had our, our baby in April. And I think like five out of the six bridesmaids uh, who were in my uh, our wedding, my, my wife's bridesmaids, they were pregnant at the same time. And within oh two months, <laughs> like five <laughs> of them had kids. Everywhere. Yeah. So I think it's all happening now. So hopefully, you know, we think about population, at least keeping it steady, uh, if only for, you know, the continued economic growth of, uh, you know, hopefully our 401ks will be worth something. And you think about social Uh, security, we need, we need to have some babies. Yeah. Oh, social security. I really don't think it'll be there, but who knows? (laughs) Money is such a, I I was just reading an article that was showing a trend line of the U S debt. And it's like from here to the here. And then we just added like, I think it was one to 3 trillion and like under, I forget the time, but it was a short amount of time, less than a few months. I was like, that is ridiculous. Who knows what the world's going to come to? I know it's, it's concerning, but we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully triathlon continues to grow. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That, there's plans for it. It's, it's, I think it is growing. It's going through an interesting phase right now. So I got to talk with the CEO of USAT and I know a couple other people that are in the world enough to like, you know, Super League and whatnot, just hearing about all the different things that are trying. I think we're in a phase now where it's like it's catching on enough esteem and interest that people are willing to take more financial risks but i think a lot of things are going to have to continue to fail until we find like these real core avenues that work because like you got ironman pto and pto with um was it usat where they just announced like that the the tour races are going to be recognized as the world championship or something like that yeah world world triathlon pto partner yeah that's right and uh the long course world championships for like world triathlon is going to be a PTO event, basically. Yeah. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it is for sure. It'll see how it all pans out in the in the, in the next couple of years. But it's an exciting time to be a part of the sport, and yeah, I love it. So cool. It is. It's good cool. stuff. Well, cool. cool, man. Well, thank you so much for jumping on. Uh, it's been super fun to kind of hear a bit of your story and a lot of your experience. Uh, we'll make sure to link the different books and the Working Triathlete website um, at the end. Um, are you taking on more athletes? If somebody's looking for Conrad or to be a part of working triathlete, how do you guys do that? We, so we have a number of coaches and we're actually bringing on a couple more. Um, but the, I personally am at capacity, uh, but we have a number of very, very good coaches who are taking on athletes. And if anybody wants to be coached or is interested in learning more about Working Triathlete, definitely go to workingtriathlete.com. You know, we have a few different tiers depending on what type of support you want. Um, we even have like just a club membership that a number of athletes are a part of. And you know, in Nashville, we have a lot of group sessions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, every literally what, one, two, three, four times a week we meet and have group sessions. We also have, I should mention, kind of have an elite development team that we have. And it's uh, it started at last year because we had 10 athletes or more who were on that age group pro bubble. And mm-hmm. we, we wanted to, A, you know, support them and, and, taking the pro card and have them sort of band together as one you know, like unit. And we also wanted to leverage that to get them 
huge discounts or sponsorships or things like that. And, and even more importantly, get them training together. Um, so in Nashville, we, we have a number of high level athletes training together and I know two of them, well, two of them are going to be doing Augusta, the race you're doing. And, um, the, the goal is to get more athletes training together in Nashville and because that group training dynamic is, is important and it's how you elevate your fitness. I mean, you can train on your own and that's definitely an approach. A lot of successful athletes do it, but it's also good to have a team around you, um, Mm -hmm. of other athletes and fitness professionals who can help you get better, um, so that's that's one thing that we're we're excited about, and you know the other thing is here in Nashville we have, again we just moved our headquarters to a facility and and we are doing a lot of really productive testing, like metabolic testing, tracking body comp. We have a, a DEXA machine here, and uh, you know that's the most accurate way to measure body comp. And again, we're doing metabolic testing, VO two max testing, anaerobic threshold all that. So it's, it's good stuff. Um, so definitely feel free to reach out to me or just submit a form on the website if you want to get in touch. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We'll make sure to link it all. Awesome. Cool. Well, Connor, thank you so much, man. It's been super fun. Awesome. Well, thanks Seth. Good chatting with you. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Stupid Questions with Conrad. Uh, thank you again to Conrad for coming on and just sharing a bunch of your experience and wisdom and stuff you've learned over the years and letting me be a little bit selfish um, about my own personal dealings with triathlon and nutrition. Um, I hope you guys found good value in it. If you've made it to this point in the episode, I would just ask that you would please um, go give a review of this podcast wherever you're listening um, and even subscribe to our YouTube channel, Stupid Questions, or my own personal YouTube channel, uh, My Crazy Moonshot. Um, Thank you guys so much and really appreciate you guys taking a listen and we will talk to you on the next one. Peace out.